This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is Afternoons on Dubai Eye 103.8. I'm Helen Farmer. Fantastic to have you with us on today's show. A hat trick of amazing experts taking care of your feet, well, everything below the knee, with specialist podiatrist Maria Mangaki speaking to us from Zia as we talked about how insoles have evolved, plantar fasciitis, and all of your questions answered. Adam Griffin on hand as we celebrated Occupational Therapy Day. What is the role of an OT? And taking your questions on everything from games to help with motor skills to driving with dyspraxia. And it was family lawyer Madeleine Mendy who was going behind the headlines as we talked about new fertility and reproductive laws here in the UAE and taking your questions on everything from prenups to divorce. It is your health clinic this afternoon and we are talking everything below the knee with Maria Mangaki, a highly trained specialist podiatrist over a decade of experience here in the UAE, the UK and Australia. She's now at Zia Medical Centre on Beach Road and we can talk about sports related foot and ankle and injuries. She can help out with adults and kids, insoles, um, dermatology even of the feet. Maria, how are you? Hi, how are you? I am, I'm very well. Good, good. I'm. Um, it always. I always find it really interesting when we have health clinics on the show because I can tell you now which ones are the most popular. So, dermatology. I'm podiatry. It's you. Yeah, honestly. Yeah. Skin, skin, teeth, feet. Always, always really interesting to me because I feel like these are kind of areas of specialty Mm -hmm. and parts of the body where people are maybe a bit unsure if do I need to go and see a specialist do I go and see my family doctor and get a referral and it's so much easier just to pick up the phone and and have a chat with Mm -hmm. us so tell us about your your interests why did you want to work in this area of medicine that's a very nice question actually Uh, I used to I when I first studied podiatrist it's because basically you realize oh everything first of all everybody has pain on their feet yes so, and it's very interesting uh, field, basically, because it's the one that supports the whole body. So our feet is the one that it keeps us moving around. Mm-hmm. And uh, like a lot of people, if you see that they are suffering from for pain, it makes their life and their daily activities very difficult. Mm-hmm. So it's a very important study. And uh, we get to see so many patients that they are suffering for so many conditions and pain or, or through their day. They cannot. They limited in sports. They are limited in um, in, in in just walking, like a normal walking. And it's uh, it's fascinating to see how much you can help these people to get back on their feet mm-hmm. and keep doing their daily activities. And actually, it can cause a lot of depression also when you cannot walk, when you can do your uh, daily activities, when you cannot actually join whatever you want to join. Yeah. It's it makes them very. It makes sense. Very yeah, and it, sad, yes. You're right in terms of not being able to do what you enjoy, not feeling social, not being able to work, perhaps. So I think um, I think it's, it's going to be really interesting, actually, because I've already had a number of questions for you, Maria. Um, what is keeping... Maybe we can open up a little bit and, and kind of address what we can talk about between now and three o'clock. What is keeping you busy at the clinic? Have you noticed any trends, especially here in the mm-hmm. UAE, having worked internationally? What's, what's I guess, hot here in Dubai? <laughs> Actually, the number one in Dubai, it's plantar fasciitis for some reason. So plantar fasciitis is the pain on the heel. It's a, we have a ligament from in the bottom of our feet, which is a very strong ligament. And usually it's a very common in UAE. So the first signs and symptoms are extremely pain, first step in the morning. So basically when you step you are, with your first step, it's very painful. Then with prolonged walking, it's getting very painful. And uh, it's so painful that you can actually, you cannot bear, you cannot stand on your feet. Mm-hmm. I, uh, so this is very, very common. I suffered this after, after having children. It was the weirdest thing after I had kids. And exactly as you said, I'd put my foot down, I'd get out of bed and the pain would take my breath away. It was the weirdest thing. And it just kind of went away. So I assumed it was to do with, you know, relaxing hormone after, after giving birth. You're lucky. Yeah, so <laughs> it went away. away. What about other people? 
So this is the number one. Usually it doesn't go away. So it can become like acute, which we are talking about three to four months, or maybe can stay for years, years and months. And uh, so, yeah, there, there are some cases it goes away, but some cases, if there is external factor, like a cause behind it, which is can be like, uh, for example, flat feet can cause plantar fasciitis. Mm. Uh, tight calf muscles can cause plantar fasciitis. And abnormal walking can cause plantar fasciitis, wrong footwear. So if you don't eliminate the cause behind it, it will keep making you suffer, basically. Mm. So it's a, usually we get the uh, patients in the clinic and we are focusing to find the cause behind it. Once you get the cause correct, then it's very easy, the treatment. And this is what I called, uh, like, it's the most tough in uh, medicine to identify the cause behind uh, any symptoms and any conditions. Then the second one uh, that actually that I get a lot of patients, it's uh, ingrowing toenails. So, you know, as ladies, we get to go to the saloons mm -hmm. a lot and have pedicures and all of these things. So and we get a lot of ingrowing toenails, which is like a piece of the nail to penetrate inside the flesh of the skin. And if you don't see it uh, like uh, barely five, like one week or though, it can get serious infection, uh, swelling, and it's a very sharp pain, stabbing pain that basically it can keep you up at night. So this is another one. And uh, usually, the, even, if, even if you take antibiotics or if you use any dressings there, it will not get better if we just don't remove the nail piece mm -hmm. that is going underneath. And and can I ask you, Maria, about, um, about diabetes in Dubai and how that relates to the foot as well? Is that something you're treating in clinic at Zia? Yeah. Actually, diabetes is a very, very important uh, uh, area because a lot of people who have a lot of diabetes, unfortunately, in UAE, and uh, how it affects the food, basically diabetes, when this, we have to, they need to have a regular check on a podiatrist to check like if there is any, any neuropathy, I mean, if they are still have a hundred percent sensation of their feet, because if they don't have the sensation on their feet and they, for God's pity, they have a small wound or ulceration on their feet, what is going to happen? It will delay the healing and it might be caused in unwanted results, you know? So we have to keep checking and, and monitor their blood sugar. And, uh, but, you know, diabetes, it's, it's a very difficult um, aspect of medicine because mm -hmm. you need, we need to have a, a big team. Of, of, you need to have to, they are endocrinologists, they are podiatrists, they are general practitioners and dietitians. So it's, uh, the patient needs to actually be very good and stick with their with the with their doctors mm -hmm. and um and we have a very good team actually in dubai dubai it's very good for diabetes it's a very whole good body approach we've got questions yeah. coming in for you maria maria mangaki is with us today she's a specialist podiatrist there at zia medical on beach road <laughs> We are talking foot health this hour with Maria Mangaki, a highly trained specialist podiatrist. She's worked across Australia, the UK, here now in the UAE at Zia Medical Centre on Beach Road and is on hand to take your questions. Maria, we've had a number of questions from parents about their children's foot health. Um, is this an area we can help with podiatry and paediatrics? A hundred percent. Like Excellent. It is a very it's an amazing area. Okay. I'm working a lot with uh, paediatricians. Brilliant. So, sorry, it's a little delay on my line here. Apologies for talking over you. Um, Z's saying, um, how can we prevent prevent a bunion from growing? My nine-year-old already has one. Would you mind explaining what a bunion is, why they form, and I guess in kids as well, helping Z out there? Yes. Uh, so bunions is basically we're talking about the big toes, the big toes. And it's when you see instead of, uh, the, the, instead of being straight, you get to see a curve of the big toe towards the second toe. So this is the bonium. And uh, how we can avoid it, especially in kids, the parents, I really advise parents to keep checking the size of, their, of, the, of the kids' uh, foot size and make sure they have the correct size of shoes because the kids are growing so fast mm -hmm. that they might not complain about it. But you, when you remove the shoe and see some redness around their toes, and especially on the bunion area, you will realize that the tight is a bit tight. So if the shoe is tight, it will actually compress the area in the toes and it will start forming bunions. 
so the 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 the, uh, the photo of the kid needs space to grow. So this is the number one, the footwear. So please keep checking your uh, child's feet and shoes to make sure that they are always fitting and always keep like half an inch space in the front of the toe box. Okay. And the second factor, if you suspend that your child have flat feet, so if they have flat feet, that it's another cause of bunion because when you the, there is a collapse of the uh, arch of their feet, then the pressure on the big toe is more than supposed to be. So it's double, the big toe is carrying double the pressure. So it's another factor why you can get bunion. So in that cases, we have to correct and add a pair of insole or advice on footwear, how to lift up this arch and avoid the pressure from the big toe. Uh, the same goes to adults actually, because a lot of adults, and especially women, we like to wear these uh, high heels and you know the pumps mm-hmm. in the front that we are squeeze our foot inside and we get bunions. Uh, also the loafers, so uh, like you always need to have space in the front, always. And uh, what else? Yes, about the also the adults. You know, when we wear these formal shoes with the suit, yes? Mm-hmm. So these shoes also they can cause bunions. So they always have to make sure that they have a little bit space in the front. Get them like half size bigger in order to have space in the front. You need to have these toes moving. If they are not moving and they're stuck inside the shoe, most probably it will give you bunion. Okay, so it's not just in kids. Can we talk about custom insoles? You just mentioned them then. Um, when might they you know, be needed and who could be a good candidate for that? Okay, so custom-made insoles, basically we, we can start seeing kids after they complete two years of walking. So if they start walking at the year at one year old, then at around three years old, and we can take a look and do the biomechanical assessment. What is a biomechanical assessment? With the biomechanical assessment, basically, we see the posture and how you are walking, all right? And we have this uh, in Zia Medical Center, we have this amazing setup and where we have cameras, when we have like the gate plate and we do a full gate analysis. So we can actually see if the child, if the walking, it's abnormal, basically. Mm-hmm. So we see tiptoes because there are some kids, they're walking on their tiptoes or they have these bow legs or you will see them that they, that they don't, they fail a lot. Like uh, when they're walking, they are failing a lot. So this is another factor. And who is a good candidate? Uh, sometimes adults, uh, they start complaining about, for example, plantar fasciitis or Achilles tendinitis or knee pain or even hip pain. And they've been to the orthopedics and they don't find anything wrong with them. I mean, when they take x-rays and MRIs, everything is fine. So then we are, we are coming along to check the biomechanics. So how they are walking, because a lot of times a simple knee pain or a simple back pain, it's because from their feet. And I'm talking about the wrong posture of their feet. So if you guys have any issues related to the lower legs and you are not sure about, and it's only when you are walking or when you are doing a lot of activities, then it's a very good time to actually check it out from your feet. So to go to a podiatrist and and take a look why this is happening, because our feet is the foundation of our body. So if anything wrong with our feet, then the rest of the body will suffer. Mm -hmm. What about, see, the thing is, I've had friends with insoles in the UK, and that's a bit easier because you're probably wearing, like you're talking about loafers or boots because the weather's a bit colder. Here, Mm -hmm. people are often wearing sandals and flip-flops, you know, keeping their feet cool, which is not that conducive to wearing insoles have you found any shoes that can really work and you know because i think a lot of people probably ditch their custom orthotics and insoles because <laughs> they just can't find the shoes that work with them is that fair actually now the technology it's very advanced and our insoles is not like before they used to be very thick yes. and very you, ha- you need a lot of space so what i'm doing now it's the carbon fiber and it's very thin and very light and it can accommodate even in loafers in smart shoes and, and it's very, actually, it's, it's a, a game changer, this insoles. And you said before about flip-flops and uh, sandals in Dubai. Mm-hmm. The insoles, we advise patients to use them only with their sports. Like when you are actually do sports, everybody wears trainers, right? So it's exactly when they will 
support their body and avoid injuries because you don't need the insults if you go to the uh, to have a coffee yeah. or a, in a restaurant. That makes sense. You just need them when you are actually walk. If you go for shopping, three hours shopping in the mall, or if you actually go to do a workout, or if you are traveling and you have to walk a lot. So this is where we use the insults in the trainers. Thank you. Um, makes sense. And then, yeah. So it's quite easy. The new, new, new technology, now everything is advanced now, you know? <laughs> it is your health clinic this afternoon and we're talking about everything below the knee with Maria Mangaki, a highly trained specialist podiatrist over a decade of experience here in the UAE. She's at Zia Medical Centre on Beach Road, the UK and Australia too. And so many questions from Maria. How do you feel about a bit of a quick fire round on the on the text line? Yes, let's go ahead. Let's go. <laughs> all right. Um, <laughs> one question saying, are all types of heels bad for the hip, bad for the feet? So comfortable shoes for women who are not fond of those pointed heels, but like a little bit of height. Um, where do you start to get a bit worried as a podiatrist as the heels get higher? And is there a sweet spot? <laughs> to be honest, I'm a woman also. So I like heels. I'm not going to lie for that. Mm-hmm. So uh, we can still use heels, but you know, you have to be a bit sensible on the terms of at least five, six centimeters of height. Don't go higher than this, obviously. And we always prefer to have a strap around the ankle because strap, it's basically it's going to keep the ankle in the back and the whole feet, so it will not keep moving around the heel and it will avoid any injuries on the toes. And I also advise patients like to get like uh, these metatarsal pads, these silicone mm. pads that you can uh, stick underneath your forefoot, the toes, so you can absorb some of the pressure and avoid your feet from moving and sliding inside the shoe. So this is another good idea and prefer like a little bit of a platform for a daily use, because for daily use, I'm, I'm talking about standing 10 hours, eight hours, using them nonstop for a daily use. So you need a little bit of platform in the front to avoid the pressures. Uh, so yeah, not all the heels are bad. Yeah, obviously it's better to wear a flat shoe, but in oh, case it's not we that have realistic. to wear, <laughs> I know, I know. So that's why you have to find a good heel, basically. But, but, no, but that's good tips in terms of the stability of the foot with the strap and the extra padding as well. I mean, between pregnancies and the pandemic, my high heel usage is absolutely nosedived. And I'm wearing my New Balance today, Thanks, but yeah. occasionally when there's a restaurant and, a, and a, a taxi involved, then yeah, the heels will come out. Um, we've had a message from Aleem saying, can you explain how swift treatment works and whether it's a suitable option for my plantar warts? Can you get it in Dubai? What is swift treatment? Are you familiar with it? Okay, so that's a very nice question, actually, because we just got it in Zia, the swift oh. therapy, like two months ago. Yes, it's a brand new. It's, a, it's basically very well known in UK, the swift therapy. What's a swift therapy? Uh, we use it for warts or verrucas, this is the same, and it's basically a microwave therapy. So it goes there on the virus and breaks down the cells in order to heal it from the inside. And for, it's a bit painful, but after the treatment, you can walk, you can do everything normal. There is no gauzes, no blood, no redness, nothing. It's just a probe that is touching on the skin and accumulates some heat on the ward, all right? So it works amazing, for spe- especially for the very stubborn wards. So this is an amazing result. So um, because historically I was thought about kind of freezing. This is more like a, a microwave therapy, a, a hot, yes, a hot the therapy. microwave therapy. And is this suitable for children or who would be a good candidate? Yes, it's suitable for everyone, actually, because there is no side effects, nothing. We don't get these nasty uh, uh, blisters that we used to get from the cryo. Mm -hmm. Uh, You have no risk of infection because there is no wound, nothing there. And uh, so basically it's suitable for everyone. And it's mostly for the very stubborn wards. And usually we saw with wards, it's a very complicated subject because a lot of people, they are complaining that they had all these treatments and nothing gets better and so on. So with the SWIFT therapy, we found it's like it's one of the treatments that is actually we saw working. I had It's funny because I had in my clinic like one month ago, this uh, 16 years old child mm-hmm. who has uh, so many warts on his foot, on the plantar area, on the bottom of, the, of his feet. And he tried so many treatments, nothing worked. And he came in the clinic for a trial. 
So we did the sweet therapy. And after the first treatment, he came back after one month and he has nothing on his foot. It was amazing. Whoa, so everything, okay. there yeah. you go, Aleem. It's here. It's in Dubai. It's at Zia. Maria can help you with it. Um, Maria yeah. was with us today. If you've got any questions for her, you're going to have to be very fast indeed. Uh, we've got a question here from Zahir. My wife has been dealing with plantar fasciitis uh, for over a year now, ever since she uh, delivered. We've tried numerous uh, solutions, but uh, nothing seems to work as much. Uh, just wanted some recommendation on the kind of shoes and uh, sandals which would help alleviate the problem. Thank so, you. So here getting in touch about his wife, we were talking about plantar fasciitis mm-hmm. earlier on and I said I had it after I had babies. His, his wife <laughs> is still struggling. When it comes to footwear um, and also some of your recommended techniques, what would your quick go-tos be, Maria? First of all, definitely uh, she needs to wear like uh, a, a, a sneaker type of shoe because we need a, to, something to absorb the pressure from the ground. All right, and also avoid the very flat shoes. We need a bit heel in the back to offload the heel, and uh, some stretchings. It will help a lot. Uh, some Voltaren gel, but we need to find the cause. So it will be very good if she can have a visit at the podiatrist to do a gait analysis and say and check why this pain it's there. Uh, because all of these solutions, it will be for short term, like mm-hmm. for the pain relief but it will keep coming back. So that's why we need to find out the cause behind it. That's fine. I'm going to, I'm literally messaging her here right now with your details. So you, she can con- come and see you direct. Just take it off, offline. And we were just talking about insoles earlier. Karis is saying, can you ask about developing foot muscles instead of using insoles? Is that something that can work for some people? It can work because usually I like in the clinic, when I give insoles, I always send them, uh, for physiotherapy if there is a need or I always provide them with exercises because I truly believe in physiotherapy also because mm-hmm. you need to get these muscles with for example if you have flat foot there are some lazy muscles there that they are not ju- they're just lazy so it's good to get them back on track so absolutely yes we need to have also some exercises with it because insoles they will help you at posture they will help you uh, to avoid pain during exercises, but it's, it's not going to fix the mm. flat foot, for example. It's a permanent, it's temporary solution. So definitely we recommend also some exercises. Maria, we've run out of time. I haven't run out of questions. It's been, as I suspected, <laughs> a very busy one indeed. Thank you so much for your insights <laughs> you and so explaining much, yeah. everything so well today. I really, really appreciate it. With your permission, if anyone wants to get in touch with the word foot, um, is it okay to send the link to your page on the Zia website would that be okay 100 that's absolutely right. fine maria really appreciate it thank you again <laughs> harry potter is in the studio design <laughs> tis you otherwise known as adam griffin head of occupational therapy at kamali clinic um you look very convincing i have to say well, good. I'm doing my best. Well, um, they had a spooky day in school. So I was in that school based occupational therapist. So I, far from being left out, if I get an excuse to dress up as a Potterhead, as Harry Potter, then I'm actually... And I had then wizard-themed games for all my kids. So it was... Oh, so which... If the sorting hat was in the studio, where, which, where do you think you'd be put? Um, do you remember my family name? So my name's Adam Griffin, not actually the OT. So Griffin, Gryffindor. <laughs> to the, I've extended this so much. My uh, front doormat is a Gryffindor logo because that's Griffin's door. Oh, oh stop there you it. Go. I love a, I love, a, love a punny person. Um, now, we are having a bit of a celebration of all things OT because it was International OT Day um, on the 27th of October. So maybe we can celebrate the... The unsung hero, as you say, of paediatric medicine. Before we talk about the role, I'd love to know a little bit about what attracted you to this area. And how at first, I, you know, when you have the career chats at school and I was told I should be like a probations officer or, or a shoe designer. You know, that the weird quiz you, you totally do. totally see that. Yeah, yeah. No, never. Silversmith was always a popular one. There you go. Um, why did this come up for you and why did you decide this was a route that you wanted to pursue? Well, this is a very sideways kind of story for me to go into OT because I had no idea. Believe it or not, when I was whole way growing up, I was intending the whole pathway was for me to go into the military. Because no. yeah, I know people are surprised by that because a lot of my family have a history in the military, and but I got an offer to uh, 
I finished high school and then I actually went into, I got accepted to study architecture. So I did a year in architecture. Okay. Well, like it was fine. It was okay. But it was very like a desktop heavy and I was just a little frustrated. Didn't really feel like this was for me. I would go to the gym. Okay. This is going somewhere, by the mm-hmm. way. So I would be in the gym uh, training and I worked in the gym as well as a, like a, a lifeguard at the time as a part-time job during uh, high school and then university. But then I'd realize, okay, over the summertime, I did a qualification and like health and fitness as like a personal trainer. So I moved into the gym. I was like, I really enjoy this. So then I became a personal trainer. And then that gave me the opportunity. I was still only 18 years old to move down to the big smoke, which is from Donegal, which is the back end of nowhere in Ireland. Sorry, Donegal, beautiful, <laughs> but not very cosmopolitan, to move to Dublin when I was 18 and didn't know a single person. So I moved down, got a job in Dublin, was a personal trainer for many years and had a great experience. But then one of my personal training clients, who's still a personal hero of mine, uh, she had a son with 12 years old who had cerebral palsy. And then I got to learn about his story and how she would face these really everyday challenges. And she was a business owner as well. She had two degrees herself and came over. She met her husband, who was actually a soldier, and he was traveling in India. She was from India and then came over and started a business in Dublin, but then had this son. And she was the son's like... She was a warrior for this little boy Mm -hmm. and she worked with his OT to expand this boy's opportunity so he had a great life. I was like, wow, this is amazing. So then I learned more about OT and this is is my favorite part of that. I think I say this a lot. I'm not sure if my wife loves this part, but it's one of my favorites that – I thought this OT is really cool. Didn't like the fact I didn't actually finish architecture. So I, my wife suggested, oh, why don't you, why don't you look into studying this? And the only place I could study it was Trinity College Dublin. Trinity is like this new school in Ireland. It's like the hardest one to get into. No one from my part of the world went to Trinity. And so I decided, okay, I'll apply purely just to humor my new girlfriend. I thought, I'll never get in. They'll see through me straight away. And and then two interviews later, I was a, technically a mature student in massive inverted commas. And then I got accepted and spent two years feeling like a total imposter because these are all straight A students. These are all little clever clogs. Mm-hmm. But I just loved it so much. And as soon as I was there, I was like, oh man, this is what I'm meant to do. And Aww. love it, love it, love it. And do you know what? It really shines through the way you speak about it and the way you come across on social media just how much you love your job. What are your favorite things about being an occupational therapist? Oh, this, is, this could be the rest of the time. I know. Um, it's, I really love the job because it has, I said this phrase a lot, I know on the show, but it's focused on the ordinary, everyday, grounded challenges of people's lived reality. So I don't care about abstractions. I want to know the things that make your day, your child's day, a little bit more stressful, a little bit harder than it needs to be. You'll do fine. You'll get on without ever seeing me, without ever seeing an OT. But life may be a grind, man. So Mm -hmm. OTs can help work with you. It's such a collaborative enterprise to overcome these barriers so you can really see what you're capable of. And so a child can really appreciate, they can surprise themselves of how much they're able to do because they overcome practical everyday barriers. You sent me a little list which was holding a pencil, listening to a teacher, make a friend, hug your partner, make a cuppa, wipe your bum. There you go. Always going to wipe your bum. But that's, again, the phrase I use a lot, it's a beautiful and most boring way. Beautiful and most everyday, almost mundane way. Mm -hmm. That's what makes it lovely because that's where the focus is. And what about the most challenging part of the job? Oh, that's almost as long a list. Um, but what cha- what is challenging about it is also what is interesting about it because it's not – there's no cookie-cutter therape- therapeutic approaches. So There are if you're not careful, but if you're a really – if you hold yourself to like a, a high standard, you should be approaching this. We use the phrase like family-centered or child-centered. It even sounds like a cliche to say every child is unique. But it's very true, and every case is unique. And you need to not only understand the child's personality, because that gives you a tiny percentage of the useful clinical information, Mm -hmm. but also know their personality and their loves and what they're interested in, what they're afraid of. So you can actually reach, you can build that bridge, establish the trust and rapport, which is the foundation of everything I do, and then build it from there. Adam, the OT, is with us. We are marking International Day of the Occupational Therapist. He told me on Instagram over the weekend, we are in the running, running for being the least sexy clinical speciality. Adam Griffin, a.k.a. the Gryffindor, dressed in full Hogwarts attire today. Live in the studio, we are marking International OT Day and you've been to a spooky celebration today, which I wanted to ask you, you know, thinking about the kids that you work with, Adam, um, Halloween, how, could, how do you think we could be making it more 
inclusive for some of your kids? Oh, that's super. Um, What's useful about that question, actually, is that it kind of highlights something that's kind of like a common uh, misnomer about the kids I work with, neurodiverse kids, that's that they don't want to be included. They're like, oh, this is too overwhelming. We'll just stay home. No, my guys really want to be part of the things. There's fun stuff happening. So put us in, coach. But the thing is, they want to be included. But at the same time, it can be a little overwhelming. So one of the biggest things, if you think for yourself... If you're going somewhere you're a little bit nervous about, if you have choices, if you know who's going to be there, do I know somebody? That can be very reassuring to anyone. Going to a dinner party, you don't know anyone? Mm -hmm. That's scary. No, thank you. If you know somebody, then it can be very reassuring. Also, for our guys, if you think of what are the challenges might be, if it's very loud or there's lots of shouting and screaming and kids going a little bit excited, which is totally appropriate and fun in the right context. But when it's out of control, when it feels chaotic, when it feels like my little person doesn't have, they're just being buffeted by all this sensation. Things like headphones, like little ear defenders can be reusable. You don't want to introduce them on that night because then they're new and scary as well. But if you have little sensory tools like this, so you've practiced over time, you don't suddenly slam them on the kid's head. But if they're feeling overwhelmed, you can offer them and say, is this better? Would you like to go back in the car? Would you like to go forward? So always the little rule I use with lots of my parents and teachers is ask, don't tell. Mm -hmm. But give them a little bit of practice. Because if you're asking someone who's already in the depths of emotional despair, they probably won't really be able to give you a cogent answer. Can I ask then um, for birthday parties as well because mm. this is something I think a lot of parents feel really anxious about that they want to be including children in their you know kids friendship group and friend classes but maybe don't know how to navigate it and then mm. end up kind of going down the safe route and you know reducing that party or not including somebody what can be some really good tools techniques you know things to have in place to make sure everyone has a good time. Yeah, that's such a super question. And I almost, I can feel parents leaning in closer to the radio in answer to that. So with, again, it's choice and again, it's access. So a lot of my kids, when there's a birthday party going on, all the birthday cake's coming out, they want my guy front and center, right beside the cake, so they can really feel in the mix. They might be drowning in sensation there. A lot, some of my guys will have issues like globophobia. You know what globophobia is? Yeah. It's a fear of balloons because... What might happen with a balloon? It could very well pop. And there's some kids whose favorite thing is popping balloons. Some of my guys, not so much. So that chaos and that unpredictability can be very overwhelming. But at the same time, you might go to a birthday party. It's a negative experience. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater there. Don't say, oh, we tried birthday parties and it's so stressful. Yeah, it may well be stressful, but there's a great learning opportunity on the other side of that stress. Mm -hmm. And you want to manage the amount of risk and stress involved. So if you're going to a birthday party, you have... For example, headphones or you have a sensory toy that the child can use. They can stand on the outside. They can stand by the door. They can go for a little while, then go out. Maybe there's another cam room and then they can go back into. This opportunity that they can have some agency, some control of what is going on in their world is really reassuring. Mm -hmm. Even if it is scary or they get a little emotional, they can leave for a while and then maybe they can come back into the kitchen. They come back and see such and such, little Johnny who's their friend and then they can bring back in. It's the same one I used before as well as when I was a lifeguard. Oh, we come full circle. Um, when I was a lifeguard, if you have someone who's a scare in the pool and they get a little panic in the water and we bring them out, it's very important for me to get that person back in the water before they leave so they don't build up a thing in their head. Yeah. It's the same thing with this stress. Manage it and then work through it. And that must be very hard for parents of neurodiverse kids who want to, of course, you know, protect their children, make sure they are happy and not stressed. And as you say, if you do have a negative experience at a birthday party or, or you know, Halloween thing, to go, oh, yeah, exactly that. We tried it. And yeah. it's not for us. But that's a very fine balance in terms of persisting but not pushing. It is. And it's something, if you imagine uh, the child has two parents, maybe mom and dad are not on the same page. Sometimes mm -hmm. dads want to be hard-nosed and say, no, he's going to get through this. It, it is very much a balancing act because of this um, removing the child from the stressor, trying to remove... Uh, anxiety from their life, it's coming from the very best place. It's trying to protect this person from adversity. But at the same time, you're also, as mean as it is to say, you're stealing their opportunity for development and for working through these sensations. But you don't want them just, okay, throw them in the deep end, swim if you can, you're going to be drowning. It's more you're going to help them along the way and take little baby steps, go to where the child is, what they can accept, be there as they're, you're, they're outsourcing their frontal lobes of emotional regulation to you help them regulate and help them then find the fun and then you've got the really good stuff. The Port in the Storm. Adam Griffin with us today. Um, I've got a quick question here from Majdi. 
Hi, good afternoon. I would like to ask if occupational therapy can be practiced for uh, also teenagers, like uh, 15 years uh, kids uh, with learning difficulties, or it just uh, it is limited for uh, younger uh, children? Great question. Can you give us a bit of an age range of some of the kids that you're working with? Oh, yeah. So OTs, we work for everybody. So everyone has occupations that change and adapt as you go through life. We work from babies to geriatrics and all the way in between. OTs sometimes have specialities, so I tend, I used to see quite a lot of early intervention, so the babies and toddlers. I, my very favorite area of practice is actually, what, what's our, our friend? Majdi. Majdi, thank you very much for your call. This is my favorite area of practice because these are the guys whose life may have been, they may have struggled with the similar problems for quite a long time, and then you can help them just make life a little bit easier. So absolutely we can work with teens. Depending on the nature of the difficulty, you might want to ask, is the therapist have experience working with this? Because some of my kids, for example, coming from a child and adolescent mental health background, they may be a little like not too delighted about being in therapy. So you really need to be good at capturing their emotional engagement because that's a vital part of the therapy process. But yeah, Maggie, we absolutely do. Hope that helps. Adam Griffin with us today, Head of Occupational Therapy at Kamali Clinic. red corner dressed as harry potter it's adam griffin we've had a number of people asking where does adam practice he is an occupational therapist you can find him as head of occupational therapy at kamali clinic but you go into schools as well adam it's not like you're in that room the whole time you are out and about with families and, and schools on a very regular basis yeah i'm in a couple of schools and i'm based in uh kamali so head of OT at kamali we're in healthcare city and jlt but if families want to reach me personally i'm very very accessible i try and be so find me on instagram as well as adam the ot and i would just say a fantastic resource um he might cost you some money in flying tiger every time he posts about some <laughs> of your purchases i'm like oh that's a great idea but some brilliant um resources some great ideas some diy stuff you can do with the kids so adam the OT on Instagram and YouTube as well. Right, to the text line we go, Adam, 4001. Heba saying, what kind of educational games would be recommended for a child at the age of two? I'd like to know games that develop motor skills, cognitive skills and creative thinking in little ones of this age. Well, the lovely thing about everything you ask for, the child's going to do almost all the heavy lifting there. So you just have to get them things that are interesting and engaging and they can kind of roll their sleeves up and get stuck in with. People tend to focus on stuff that's a bit whiz-bang, a bit you know, shiny and makes lots of noise and takes batteries and looks really impressive in the packaging. I can tell you, your two-year-old doesn't really care about that. Mm-hmm. Things like that are there's a reason things like building blocks are classic, uh, puzzles, shape sorters, anything the child can get their hands on, manipulate and use for different purposes. One of my favorites for this age is anything that's role play based. So things like little cooking sets, pots and pans, um, little vegetables and fruits, and anything like that is all great ideas. Um, if you look at a lot of the packaging, they'll have recommendations for age. What I usually say is people tend to buy a little too old. So things that have smaller parts you don't want for that age, anything under three that you have the swallowing issues. Mm-hmm. So look at the packaging. It'll give some guidelines and then take it from there. I like that because batteries run out. We never replace them. <laughs> Kids get over stuff like that because it seems yeah. to have one purpose. Whereas mm-hmm. you're saying if there's an element of interpretation and role play, much more longevity. Now, Lenny's been in touch with a question. Uh, Lenny, we tried to get you on the phone because I think it's such a good one that Adam would be, I'm sure, really interested to talk to you about. Saying, my son is 18 and has dyspraxia. Um, He does have gross motor skills that are affected and what's been called poor hand-eye coordination. He's beginning to talk about driving lessons and I'm unsure what might help him or if it's even safe. Would welcome any and all advice. Are there any guidelines on dyspraxia and driving, Adam? Yeah, so dyspraxia, or so when you're looking online, dyspraxia is one of the terminologies. The other is DCD, Developmental Coordination Disorder. Any information you find, the best in the world is in McMaster University in Canada called Can Child. Uh, dyspraxia Foundation actually have a guide about dyspraxia and driving. So it's like a two-page document for actually driving instructors and parents and teens of things to be aware of. But if you think of what makes DCD or dyspraxia challenging, it's the making the motor plans, making understanding your motor actions and making sense of things. Mm-hmm. Also planning and organizing oneself as well, which you can imagine all of that driving is almost like a perfect storm for. Now, 
that can be terrifying because people are like, oh my gosh, my kid's getting behind the wheel. He still struggles tying his shoes. Oh my, he's in this massive vehicle now. No, you don't want to rule it out. For a lot of people with DCD or dyspraxia, it takes a little while to learn the thing. So making the motor plan can be a little more laborious, a little bit more challenging, a little bit more frustrating for sure. But that motor plan can be made and can be made very adeptly once you have it there. And the big thing is practice, practice, practice. Mm-hmm. So making the, making the task a little slower, a little easier, having a lot of doing the theory first. Um, using an automatic, obviously, instead of a manual will be much, much better. And then very slow, having a lot of time to practice, for example, the classic, like in a big car park or somewhere with a driving instructor. And you're going to have lots and lots of lessons. You're not in any rush to pass the test. So give it time to build those motor plants. And also presumably the right instructor as well. 100%. That little guy, Dyspraxia Foundation, I would give that, just hand it to the driving instructor yeah. and say, Take your time. This, this is, what is we're fun. With. Yeah, this all is what right. we're Brilliant. Lenny, all the very best to you and your boy. Um, anonymous message here saying, I have a highly sensitive child and it's clear we need help. He's got massive anger burst issues. School report and behaviour are impeccable, but once picked up from the school, it's a massive emotional breakdown that continues. Um, is this an OT thing or should I seek help from someone else? Yeah, if you ask a bunch of medical professionals, a load of them are going to say, we could do this, we could do this. And the truth is, a lot of people could help. So you could go to a psychologist, you could go to a psychiatrist, you can go to ABA to talk about behavioral interventions. But for sure, OT is going to throw her hat in the ring and will absolutely step in there as well. Mm. There's a lot of he can do. What they're talking about, it's kind of almost like you have a phrase called sundowning, which you see in old people's homes. Say that again? Sundowning. Which, sundowning. Yeah, I where was people... thinking that's this, like me on a beach. <laughs> no, not that uh, fun. Uh, so it's more like you bottle it everything up for a certain time and then as the you get to the when you finish this one structure for example a school is a very structured supportive and well, not necessarily supportive but it's a very structured environment that doesn't give a lot of opportunities to decompress oh there's immediate obviously responses from your peer group for example if you did break down school if you emotionally dysregulated so you're keeping all buttoned up like a pressure cooker and then when you get home that's the time you can feel oh, it, all that can kind of bubble to the surface and can, you can uh, kind of bubble over and dysregulate all over the place um, so there are things you can do to prevent that and to kind of guard against it Honestly, the big thing for me with fam- – I get a lot of referrals for this actually – is don't look at this as like a massive crisis. Oh, my goodness. Think, okay, here's where we are. Where can we go from here? How can we help this kid? And doing a lot of work about identifying uh, emotional dysregulation. There's a program called Alert, How Does My Engine Run, which I use with a lot of kids. It's very, very nice. And this teaches the young person to identify their own level of emotional dysregulation. Not that they're like, oh, my God, I'm very sad or angry. It's just I'm feeling too much, man. If my mm. engine's in the red, how can I take my foot off the gas? So um, whether – and I, I've got no idea in terms of this childhood diagnosis. It's kind of – Irrelevant, to be honest. Um, But for all parents listening today, if they have, and we have this in our house, I feel like my kids are exactly as you say, buttoned up, doing their best, and then they see me and it all just falls apart. And I'm okay with that. I honestly Mm. am. I don't enjoy it, but I'd rather that they felt comfortable doing that with me. Um, But what are some kind of things that people, parents can do to allow this outlet before it bubbles over, before it turns into, I don't know, for example, off the top of my head, hair pulling and fighting their sister? Yeah, oh, it's a, yeah, theoretically, let's say hypothetically, who knows? Um, Yeah, so the one is read the book, The Whole Brain Child, one of my favorites for this area, because it makes you much more relaxed when you see, oh, my child, they're not really in their thinking brain right now. Mm. If I try and rationalize with this person who's already dysregulated, I'm just going to add more fuel to the fire. And I'm going to make myself very stressed as well. So when you see them identifying, starting to get really upset, one of the things, one of the tips and tricks OTs do is we speak to this young person's physical self. So doing physical things to help their breathing calm down. You want to remove them from the stressful position straight away. So if they're in a room and it's very loud or they're this anxiety, they're getting really upset about something. So like, okay, I'll go down to their level, hand the shoulder, bring them to the side or bring them to another room, have a little chat, take a couple of deep breaths, do the deep breaths, and that, what we, isometrics are called. So this is like squeezing your hands, or they can squeeze my hands, hold them really tight. And then when you release that isometric contraction, you get this almost like, oh, this decompression happens normally. Wow. Pair that with the deep breathing, and then suddenly this person, it's almost like the fog lifts from their eyes, and we can have a little talk about, okay, I can see you're really upset, and what can we do, okay? And then explain their options, okay? This is do you want to do this? Or do you want to do this? So they have, they keep, this word again, agency. They have ability to make choices about what happens next and think the way through before they batten down the hatches and get into their emotions too deep. 
Adam Griffin, thank you so, so much. Really, really appreciate your time and indeed your costume today. What's around your neck? This is a time turner, which is her, if you her Potterhead like myself. So Hermione uses this to travel through time so we can, she can attend all her classes. Every OT should have a time turner so we have time to plan our <laughs> sessions and make things fun for kids and write our notes and write reports and speak to parents and schools. And yeah, we're, we're magicians pretty you much. You are a wizard, Adam Griffin. For anyone that wants to follow you on Instagram, YouTube, what's the best way of getting in touch? Yeah, find me on Adam the OT on Instagram. That's probably the easiest and the one I'm most kind of... Um, uh, what do you say? The one I uh, produce more stuff. Well, yeah, active. There you go. Active. What, what is it when an author writes a lot? What's that called? Oh, God. Prolif- oh, prolific. Prolific. There we go. See, I'm the most prolific on Instagram. Ah, oh, professional hell. You pulled that in the bag. <laughs> you. And on YouTube, you'll find a lot of activities. So about seven or something, home-based motor skills activities as well. I need to post more on there. I shall be back on YouTube shortly. Or in person, they can find me at uh, Kamali Clinic, where I'm the head of occupational therapy. There you go. And if you want those details, send me the word, Adam, the latest post. He is wearing the outfit he's wearing in the studio. Adam, the OT. Welcome to your free legal clinic. It's all about family law today with Madeleine Mendy from Bin Seven Associates and legal consultants. She can help us with all aspects of family law from prenuptial and postnup agreements through to divorce, child custody, alimony and more. Already lots of messages coming in and we're going to be helping out as many people as we can. And looking behind the headlines too, Madeleine Mendy, how are you? I am well and busy. You're well? Busy. Yes. Mm-hmm. yes. Yeah. Well, it's not going to be quiet for the next 45 minutes, my dear. So buckle up. Um, I thought about you when I saw some headlines last week and I was like, I need to be hearing this, not in legalese, but in simple language that we can all understand. Because there have been some announcements. Would you mind breaking it down for us? It's relating to fertility and reproductive law. Yes. The government of the UAE, so it's a federal law that's been issued that is now saying that... Uh, unmarried Muslim couple in the UAE are entitled to have access to uh, assisted reproduction, such as IVF, in a licensed clinic. So the key word there is unmarried. Unmarried and non-Muslim. There you go. Okay. So there's also been reference to egg storage as well, I believe. What's, yes. what's happening there? So prior to, prior to the new law, we couldn't, uh, it's not so much egg storage, it's embryos. So the egg and the egg and the sperm put together. Um, so embryos can now be stored for five years, extendable for another five years, as long as both parties agree. Here's something that I haven't prepped you on. <laughs> Tell me. <laughs> are you getting egg and embryo coming up in divorce settlements because I know a couple and they got divorced before they ended up kind of going through the full IVF process with an embryo in the mix. Yes, I did when I was in England. I was, um, I was, when I finished training uh, and became a lawyer, I was in Bristol and there was a very famous case at the time where a couple had got together, uh, were married, had a... um, created some embryo. The lady had gone through extensive cancer treatment. Mm -hmm. These were the only embryos she was going to get. And she wanted to implant them despite the divorce. And uh, the case went all the way to the highest court in the country. And what was the outcome? They destroyed the embryos. See, this is what I find really interesting. This this is the time. How long ago was that, though, Madeleine? Uh, this was now you're gonna get. I'm gonna have to do with my age. This was that wasn't my a intention. Good, a good fifteen years ago. So it's, it'd be interesting to think about how this translates now. Well, know. in the UAE, I've seen in the new because I've seen the new draft law, or the the new law that's about to come out. They've removed that completely. So the embryos will be uh, destroyed, and they have several um, situations. One of them is divorce of the party death of either party because you know outside of the UAE if you give your consent to say after my death I'm happy for my embryos to be used you can't do that here with the new law Interesting. and then also if both parties agree to the embryos being um, destroyed in writing and then the last one of course if the period of extension is, is finished. Yeah, it's just, I find it really fascinating to think about these you know, tabled discussions about okay well who gets the house? Who gets yes. the dog? Let's talk about custody Very and who difficult. gets the embryos. It's a really modern, modern situation. Madeleine Mendy's with us today.
Joining us in studio, Madeline Mendy from Bin 7 Advocates and Legal Consultants. We are talking family law on the show today. No name on this one, Madeline, and I'm going to take a little centering deep breath because it is quite complicated. Saying, my friend's daughter got a full scholarship to study abroad. She's a minor. She's under 17. Her mum agreed. The dad disagreed. The parents divorced. Custody is with mum. The daughter tried to talk to her dad. It didn't work. The mum and daughter travelled to Australia for her studies. The dad found out, filed a case to get the kids back and remove custody of both kids. My question is, what can she do? Should she keep the daughter in Australia till she reaches a legal age? And what is the legal age that would allow her to make her own decisions about study without the permission of her father? Um, what would be the best option since there's no communication with the ex-husband and the daughter doesn't know anything about what the mum is going through, just trying to keep her focused? Daughter is from here if the law makes any difference. Can he remove custody of the two kids and the second, the boy is 13? Right. Um, wow. Um, there are different aspects here, right? The first one is what I discussed previously here is no parent can unilaterally remove a child uh, from the UAE without the other one's consent. So technically, this lady has committed kidnapping, right? Um, now, there are two ways to approach this. If the father hasn't made any criminal case against the mother uh, for kidnapping, what she can do is probably get her lawyer from Australia to write to him and say, right, uh, this is the situation in terms of the daughter. It, the main thing is whether the daughter is boarding or not because there's a second child here and he's been deprived of contact from with both of those children. So I think if he's provided at least with a reasonable level of contact with the eldest daughter who is uh, studying abroad and either the youngest child is brought back here with mum on the condition that no criminal case is made against her, I don't see what reasonable parent will, will refuse that. Mm-hmm. Okay. So this uh, listener, I'm going to um, make sure you have a podcast. You can send this to your friend. Um, Madeline, thank you so much for that. I know it's a lot to kind yes. of extricate there. Um, we were just talking earlier about law changes regarding um, embryo storage, IVF. Vishnu asking, what complications can arise around birth certificate if there isn't a marriage certificate? Right. Uh, there are two types here. So if there is no marriage certificate and there is a daddy, then all you need to do is an application through the court um, and it takes about two or three weeks. So there's been an unmarried, unmarried couple have a baby together. That's right. Okay. Unmarried couple have a baby together and the father is present in the UAE at the time of birth. They then both go and make an application for the court and the court provides them with an order that uh, asks the, um, the birth certificate issuing authority to issue the birth certificate. Scenario two. Scenario two, which I've come across a few times now, couple breaks up during the pregnancy, dad then refuses, or either dad moves out of the UAE or refuses uh, to recognize the pregnancy. Mum is stuck. If she gives birth in the UAE, she will go through the same procedure as the unmarried couple, but the court will decide the surname of the child. Uh, which is, is, we should just say this name would not be picked at random. It would be... No, it will be. It could be picked at random. It will literally be picked at random. What? So the first name one, so if you want your ch- you'll make an application to the court saying, I want my child to be called, named John Smith. I was going to say John. And then, and then uh, if the judge decides that it's going to be John, I don't know, John. Would they choose a name that would be related to the nationality of the mother or would they no, choose something? it's literally a random name for now. We have to remember there's a reason behind that, simply because under UAE law, a child can only be affiliated to the family of his father. So they can't just pick any name. If we give him John Smith, if Smith was the mother's name, he'll be affiliated to the mother's family, Gosh. when technically he's not. So, so there's some progress still to be made. I'm sure, I'm sure that will come along. Uh, no name asking, can single women now get IVF in the UAE? Short answer is no. Uh, the new law provides for unmarried couples uh, who have obtained the, auth- the authorization from the DHA to be able to apply. Okay, really hope that helps. We've got, um, unsurprisingly, a plethora of divorce questions coming nice. your way, Madeline Mendy. Mm-hmm. 
Madeleine Mendy is in the studio, family lawyer. We are talking about all sorts of different aspects of family law. We've just been addressing some of the recent law changes. And divorce questions for you. Madeleine Mendy is from Ben Seven Advocates and Legal Consultants. Text lines are open for competition entries, but also messages to her as well. 4001 on the app or the WhatsApp too. Um, message here, no name, and you can, of course, be completely anonymous, saying, my husband wants a divorce. The apartment is under his name and is paid in full until March next year. He's moved out. I'm still living there. He's recently told me he's given consent to the landlord to sell the apartment early, so no year's notice was given. Do I have any rights? Nothing is in my name. We don't have children. I'm not on his visa, but could he make me homeless? So under the law, he has an obligation to provide her with accommodation until the divorce has been finalised. Doesn't necessarily need to be in the apartment that uh, she was living in. Uh, that's number one. But the problem is, with the no-fault divorce, she, he can be divorced within six weeks. Mm. That's something to bear in mind. And she has no right to that apartment because she's not under tenancy. What would your advice be if this was your friend? Uh, I would uh, tell her that either her or a lawyer writes a letter to him, reminding him of his obligation under the law, especially if he's already paid the rent, mm. uh, and to simply agree with the landlord that she will vacate at the end of the tenancy. Okay. I hope you're okay out there. Um, um, a message here from Kay saying, um, Hi both. My marriage is breaking down. I'm looking to separate and getting prepared. We've got a UAE joint savings account, which I think I've put 70% in and him 30%. I'm happy to split it two ways and be done. But could I get into any legal trouble for literally transferring 50% to my own account and moving out? I didn't see a problem, but friends told me a court does this as a kind of asset separation. Would thank you in advance for any advice. So the issue normally with joint accounts, what I normally say to clients is until the divorce is finalised, write to the bank and simply say no one can withdraw money without the consent of the other, so that money is blocked. But ultimately, if the person is able to show that they have contributed 70% of, or at least 50% of, of the content, uh, they can withdraw it. Okay. Um, so I'm loving all the messages we're getting on food. I'm now really hungry. Um, <laughs> my seven-year-old son is in the car. He says, McDonald's. William. Yeah, I, 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 think, I, think my, I think my six-year-old would totally agree. Said saying, dates with camel milk. Therese saying, classic steak and mushroom pie. And eggs, says Asma. Tell me quickly. It's your very last chance to win those tickets. Um, anonymous message saying, is it possible to get an Emirates ID for a child with only proof of custody instead of a no-objection letter from the other parent? Uh, my son is 15, no longer wants to live with his father, but I'm not sure if I can sponsor him without a no-objection letter. I think there's a, maybe a bit of confusion here because yes. I'm thinking about what you need in order to sponsor. But yes. you, So, I mean, MSID and sponsorship are different things. To be able to sponsor a child, it's the visa, right? He can still live with her and still be sponsored by his dad. Generally, the law says if a father has a valid UAE visa, then he should sponsor the child. That's mm-hmm. his responsibility. Is she able to do that only if the father gives a non-objection certificate? Is there any um, salary brackets that you need to be in in order to sponsor a child as a as a mother, single mother? Not sure. Not sure. I'll have okay. to double check that. Um, okay. So if you want to follow up on that, get in touch. Um, we're very happy to expand on that a little bit. Um, and another anonymous message saying, I'm divorced. I'm in a position where I need to understand what would happen should my ex-husband die? What would immediately happen to my children? Would they stay with me? I'm not in a position to get a will drawn up via DIFC. Right. If she's not in a position to get a will drawn up at the IFC because of the cost, they can still get a guardianship agreement in place. Uh, that's one option, saying what? who the children should go to in the event of either of their death. Okay. But also, I'm assuming if they're divorced, they've already sorted out custody. So that agreement should be brought to the court, to the mm-hmm. attention of the court. More importantly, I had a case this week, and I'm going to slot that in. Um, they were divorced, been divorced for, for over five years. The husband had forgotten to remove the ex-wife on his um, life insurance policy when he passed away. The money went to the ex-wife. So when you get divorced, please make sure that your beneficiaries are changed. Paperwork in place, people, before, during and after. Yes. Madeleine Mandy, we've run out of time. Thank you so much. I know.
Already. It's been a whistle-stop tour. We've got some Billy Ocean. Um, thank you so, so much for your time as ever. Um, really great to get some clarity on some of those law changes. When are we expecting them to come into place and where can people read more if they need to dig a little bit deeper? The draft law has been circulated to lawyers at the moment. In Arabic. Uh, in Arabic. So, of course, we good old Google Translate or legal <laughs> translators. Um, it's difficult to, to say, and I'm really going to give your lawyer's answer as to when it's coming, simply because... You just never know. Mm. Uh, I know medical directors from IVF clinics are being consulted at the moment. So it's in process. It's coming. You'll keep us posted, right? I will do. Okay. Madeline Mandy, if you want her details, drop me the word law or you can find her on Instagram. Great resource there as ever. And she'll be back very soon indeed. And thank you for downloading this episode of the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast. Don't forget, you can subscribe. You'll get it direct to your phone as soon as it's out. And you can listen to me live on Dubai Eye 103.8, Monday to Friday between 2 and 5 p.m. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.